This week, before we get into our episode, there's a topic that weighs deeply on our hearts. On Friday the 18th, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. We at The Youth Vote view Justice Ginsburg not just as an inspiration to us all, but specifically as an inspiration to young women across the country and even the world. In her life, she fought to prove that women deserved a seat at the table. Throughout her career, she advocated for human rights. Because of her and her legacy, the United States is a more democratic and a more just place to live. Thank you for your life's work and rest in power. We've spent three episodes now going into detail about the problems with the American voting system. We talked about our country's racist history of voter suppression tactics and how they've continued to today through the form of various discriminatory laws that make it extremely difficult for some people to vote. Voting laws vary state by state and county by county, which might make it more confusing to navigate vote by mail or absentee voting. Scores of Americans have no faith in voting or politics in general. We would be remiss if we left it at that, because all of these bad things are only part of the story. In episode four of our Voting in America series, we're talking about the solutions to these problems and the people who fight for those solutions. There are people working every day to attack these issues with many different approaches. Today, we will speak with some groups who work specifically to engage and energize voters in Native American and Latinx communities. We will also talk about things that you personally can do to expand voter access. I'm Isaac Mitchell, and you are listening to The Youth Vote. Stay with us. Since voting rules vary depending on where you live, each county in America has its own official entity which oversees elections. These officials have all sorts of different titles. They can be called the county auditor, or a county clerk, or a board of elections, to name a few. Our first guest today is Marianne Penska. She's a board member on the Board of Elections in Butler County, Ohio, north of Cincinnati. Her job is to increase voter turnout and to ensure that everyone in her county has equal access to voting. The biggest one that I think I help address is talking about people who think their vote doesn't matter. In a presidential election, it's easy to see how my little vote for a president doesn't matter. But there's, um, there's a effective saying that, that says all elections are local. And I have seen elections decided by less than five votes. And these are things that really probably impact people more on a day-to-day basis than even maybe a federal election. And, and because that's such a close margin, it absolutely does matter. So educating everybody, you know, I do presentations for different communities who have reached out and said, hey, you know, based on your knowledge, you know, can you do a presentation for this group or that group? And again, my presentation 100% is to cut through the chaos that people are trying to muddle through so that they can develop a very 
safe, effective voting plan for themselves this year. Aside from educating people on the nuts and bolts of voting, Marianne also tries to expand transportation to voters who don't live very close to their polling station and who may have no access to a car or other means of public transportation. When it comes to transportation, that's a little bit more challenging. Um, we as the Board of Elections can't do anything, but me as an activist can. So we can, um, we can get carpools. Um, organized so that people can call in to either the county parties and say, hey, I really need a ride to go to the poll to either drop off my mail-in ballot or to uh, vote in person. And we'll be, doing, uh, we'll be doing a lot of that as well. We're going to talk with Marianne a little more later. But first, we wanted to hear from some groups that have been working tirelessly this election season to expand voting rights. Because voting is confusing in so many different ways, a lot of community organizations have popped up over the years to help ensure that every voice is heard. Some of these groups are well-established and others have been more recently formed. That's the beauty of community organizing. It just takes a few people who see a problem and want to address it. It's actually quite remarkable what a lot of these groups have accomplished. There are huge national organizations that do this kind of work, like the ACLU, a group that tackles voter suppression laws in court, or the Asian Americans Advancing Justice Group, which has a hotline for voting assistance in nine different Asian languages. There's also Election Protection, which is a national nonpartisan group with a hotline that you can call if you encounter any problems with voting. That number, by the way, is 866-OUR-VOTE. But our next two guests are members of newer organizations, which do very important work in their respective communities. I'm going to start off by introducing myself in my traditional language. So, so I am Carly Lehman. I'm originally from the Navajo Nation, so around um, Winter Rock area. And we, we always try to introduce ourselves in our native language, um, wherever we go, whatever we're doing. Carly works for Seeding Sovereignty, a collective led by indigenous or native people. They work to dismantle colonial institutions and replace them with indigenous practices. The group was founded in 2016 and has grown to work with indigenous people from North America, South America, and other tribes around the world. They focus on many different things, such as the environmental issues that impact indigenous communities. They raise awareness about issues such as the destructive oil pipelines the U.S. government continues to push onto native lands. The group also sheds light on things like the ever-growing crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women. But today, we're going to talk about what Seeding Sovereignty is doing to get out the indigenous vote. Here's Carly again. And I am the youth coordinator, and I was brought onto the team to talk about youth and how we can incorporate them into voting. So I, I personally believe there is distrust with um, indigenous communities, native communities with the government. And of course, elections are governmental. So it's very hard to get people to trust the system. And then you think about like the history of how it took us, gosh, until 
1962 for all 50 states to approve us basically to get us the right to vote like it's it's still very fresh like still very new to us so from being in a way herded to the polls and trying to get us registered to vote after we just went through assimilation is very I guess traumatic to us like it, it's kind of still happening the same way like rounding up people to Unfortunately, our audio briefly cut out here, but Carly was saying that to some indigenous people, the process of getting huge masses of community members out to vote echoes the violent forced assimilation of tens of thousands of indigenous children into the United States boarding schools in the late 19th century. If you aren't aware of this history, I encourage you to do some reading on the Carlisle Indian School and some of the other boarding schools that are part of the long history of United States attempts to either kill, remove, or assimilate Native Americans. Kind of the same process, so I, I think it brings a lot of trauma back. When it comes to voting, another issue Carly talks about is the geographical challenges of living on reservations. If I wanted to register to vote, I'm doing it here in the city. And if my aunt wants to register to vote, she's doing it on the reservation, but she lives in a rural place that has no internet. She has no cable. Um, so I think it's just, it's just hard to get everybody on one page at the same time when we don't have the connection to everybody, if that makes sense. So you think about it like transportation. Transportation is already hard enough for Native people and Indigenous people. So some people live 20, 30, 40, an hour away from a post office. To drive somewhere, maybe like 30 minutes to basically two hours is going to be very hard for anybody. And then for our elders to go out there in the middle of a pandemic is going to be very scary. So how are we going to get out to the reservation during a lockdown, during curfews, and basically reservations not allowing people in and out because they're trying to keep the people safe. How are you going to get polls out there? How are you going to get people to actually vote then? So it, the pandemic just broadens it and, and brings more light to what the issue is on reservations. While there are all these complications when it comes to voting access in indigenous communities, ceding sovereignty has found ways to work around them. They've created a new digital initiative called Radicalize the Vote. Last month, they hosted a virtual registration telethon. From what we've seen and what we've heard, this is kind of the first of its kind to be 12 hours long and we continually have entertainment going and going and going. And registration-wise, we got about 140 people registered through the website. And that doesn't count like for people going onto their phone and going to like vote.org or something like that. Um, we had about 35 states involved overall during that telethon. So I, I feel like it was very successful and that's why we're gonna keep pushing it to get people to register to vote using Radicalize the Vote. Like Carly mentioned earlier, indigenous people didn't fully gain the right to vote until 1962. So there's not a lot of data out there to track how indigenous people are voting. This is something else that ceding sovereignty is working towards fixing. Radicalizethevote.com has been amazing. There's different information on there and we hope in the future with different elections that we can keep it going 
and we're able to pull different statistics from it and different data. So we then have something to look back on that says this is the indigenous vote and this is what happened and this is what we can do in the future because we feel like other backgrounds do have that capability of tracking what background voted the most or where this demographic voted the most and had the most impact on that vote and we want to be able to do that too. Carly says that seeding sovereignty has taken a unique approach in expanding their efforts and in spreading their message by using the youth. And then these these are basically future leaders that we have reached out to. They're involved in their communities. They're involved in different organizations. They're at universities involved in organizations there. What we decided to do was do it through social media. Like we know youth use a lot of social media from Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So what we did was create different graphics and then we did invites and they just share it on all their platforms because we know when they get one share, their friend's going to see it and it's just going to lead to this domino effect of like so many thousands of people seeing it, especially the youth, because they use stories, they use retweets and posts and shares. Seeding Sovereignty has a huge social media presence. Their Instagram has over 225,000 followers. So it's just interesting to see how it kind of just leads into this bigger network of webs that just go out. And, and the youth that we've connected with have connections back to their homelands and have connections on their reservations, even though they may be in school and at a university. But I know that they speak to their aunt or their grandma or their cousins. And again, it just leads to this huge like web effect where they can connect to this person can contact their cousin who is on the reservation. And then this cousin tells their aunt and their grandma and their other cousins. Carly says that seeding sovereignty's work is not about instant success. Their efforts are going to take a long time to blossom into change. I know that there are people out there who who have felt like their voice hasn't been heard, even though they voted. Um, but you you have to think about, it, it takes years sometimes, or it takes a huge amount of people gathering together, such as water protectors gather, gathering together to stop something. But then you think about that, like it, we weren't 100% successful until a couple years later. But we just hope that we get a bigger, a big enough community together and we get more Native voices in there, such as like people like Deb Holland, who speaks very openly about Indigenous problems in New Mexico and in the Southwest. So trying to, I guess, inch our way into the governmental part of things will eventually lead to change. My name is Jelly Duckworth. I am the community organizer with Vote KC, which is a grassroots initiative um, trying to get the most marginalized groups out to the polls. You might remember, we also spoke with Vote KC in episode two of this series. But today, we're talking specifically about the work the group does in Kansas City to address voting rights within the Latinx community. Jelly tells us about some of the distinct issues that impact Latinx people. 
I definitely want to say that the false narratives that come before uh, even talking about you know, voters' rights, the false narratives that we talk about the Latinx communities are what really um, disables them as far as a group of being heard as individuals. We are hearing this national narrative that they either criminals, that they're illegal, and no human is illegal, um, that they're coming here and, and taking jobs. When that's far from true, um, majority of the Latinx community is, is the backbone of our agricultural economy. A lot of our immigrants, I would say, as a whole, are the backbone to our agricultural economy. Um, and as you see, um, they are being very mistreated right now in, in the impact of COVID um, because they don't have health care and they're completely forgotten in those regards of getting proper PPE and things of that nature. And additionally, we don't talk about how majority of um, individuals from Latin America are coming here as refugees as well. So fleeing poor regimes such as El Salvador and Honduras, like we don't have somebody in the White House that helps that, that helps actually tell these stories. Jelly says these harmful stereotypes have a huge impact on the legal rights of immigrants, especially those who are non-U.S. citizens. When we talk about them not having rights, we have to also understand that majority of the Latinx community are also not considered citizens or have so many adversities to becoming citizens of the United States. And why that's important is because that means that also half of us cannot vote. Like Jelly said, it's an extremely complicated and lengthy process to become a United States citizen. And in order to address that issue, we must first correct the false narratives surrounding immigrants and refugees. It has a lot to do with dehumanizing the individual first. And I think that is really what keeps us from having broader conversations when you don't even look at them as equal. And the sad thing about that is that it's hard to voice that when they're in constant fear of being deported, when they're in constant fear of if they speak out that they're um, not a citizen of the U.S., then there's going to be repercussions, as we've seen with ICE raids recently happening. So our, our current political climate right now is that there has been an extreme loss of trust in our government. And establishing trust, which is one of the hardest things to do, but one of the most vital things to do with this community. And that is because even though there some of the individuals in the family may not vote, they've had kids here who are citizens of the U.S. So it's usually working with those individuals, but also being super aware of confidentiality. For example, um, I'm technically Chicana. I was born in the U.S. My mother was an immigrant here from Mexico. Uh, my mother is, uh, she can register to vote. She is a citizen. Um, she came here when she was fairly young, but at the same time, I have to be sensitive to other family members who may or may not be citizens of the U.S. So I, if I were on the flip side and I was talking to an individual like me, I would say, hey, Jelly, like you can vote. I understand your situation. Actually, it's actually why your vote is so much important because of your situation, because of your family. And again, hearing why, letting them know why we understand that's important is, is that building the trust. Language barriers are another really big hurdle when it comes to voting within the Latinx community. And Vote KC is working towards ways to address this issue within Kansas City. 
So, like, one of the things, too, you also have to understand, like, none of our, like, ballot information, mail-in and absentee ballot, none of it is provided in Spanish, now, let alone other languages, right? That's something that we've actually specifically done at, at Vote KC. We've worked with the election board, and we're like, yo. Uh, and they're like, well, we won't do it. We won't translate it for you. So we're like, well, can we translate it? And then we get it approved by you. And then we make copies. And they were like, well, technically, yeah, as long as we approve it. And we're sitting here thinking like, okay, if it's that simple, then there should be no reason why you aren't taking the initiative to do it. And again, it's just, it's not, it's more than just like a relieving a barrier. It's saying like, I care about you. Like, I, I care about you to know that, like, I'm not going to give you something you can't read. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, Jelly is echoing the problem that exists within many marginalized communities. Like she said earlier, there is a huge lack of trust when it comes to voting. And one of the ways Jelly works around this issue is by having meaningful and culturally relevant conversations. For example, I, for my actual job, the majority of the population I work with are primarily Latinx and Hispanic communities. And a lot of them have been there for a very long time. So I'll go with them and they're like, I'm a resident, but I'm not, not a citizen of the United States yet. And it's always, I never stop there. Like, oh, okay, thank you. You know, I'm not interested. It's like, okay, where are you from? Do you have family here? You know, like, uh, because they can, again, they mostly usually have grandchildren or they have children of their own that have children. And so it's, it's, never stopping just because they can't vote. It's, again, to reestablish that trust is really digging in deeper to really understand the narrative and the true narrative. And I think those are like really important, tangible ways of the establishing trust piece. And then again, make, being accessible to them. To solve all of these voting issues and to address the ways we value immigrant and refugee communities in this country, we really need a combination of community level advocacy work as well as huge structural change. But Jelly says it's so important to acknowledge any small victories. Incremental successes, I think, should always be highlighted in this work. And in this work, by that I mean any social, racial justice advocacy work that you're doing, the small wins really add up. Sometimes my wins look like talking to somebody, getting through to them. And if that means I took like an hour out of my time to talk to one person to change their mind to get to the polls. It looks like that. So success for me in that regard is being able to get somebody to understand that they truly matter as a human being. Because once they have that, then you can get them to understand why it's so important that they use their voice in this election and the future elections as well. So yeah, my piece is always the dignity. It's always the respect for the human being. One of the things I think is very particular, again, about the Latinx community is that we have really yet to fight for the rights of our mothers and, and fathers and tios and tias and abuelitas and abuelitos. For those of us who, of them, who are not, who are still non-citizens and considered non-citizens, even though they deserve those rights. And why I say that is because that should create some urgency in some of our younger generations, some of the Chicanos like me, um, that to really fight for that aspect and realize how that is an, an incredible barrier for getting the majority of our population out to the polls. And once we address that, our immigration policies here, it's going to make a world of a difference when we actually start seeing and humanizing our, our population. 
Now that we've spent a little bit of time learning about the ways that folks are on the ground trying to expand voting rights to underrepresented communities, we wanted to end our show by talking about things that you can do to ensure that everyone's voice is heard. In our next and final episode of this series, we'll talk a lot more about how you can create and execute a voter plan. But beyond just casting your own ballot, there are many other things you can do. For one, you can start supporting groups like Seeding Sovereignty or Vote KC. Many of these organizations are actively accepting donations. And if you're not able to offer any financial support, you could at least follow them on social media and help to amplify their messages. And look into local voting groups in your own community. You might not know of any, but I promise if you do a little bit of digging, you're going to find that there are other people who are already doing this work right where you are. And aside from just supporting these organized efforts, you can also look into your own personal networks and have conversations with those who you already regularly interact with. A lot of folks are simply unaware of just how messed up the voting system is in America. And it's important to raise awareness so that we can all try to move forward with new solutions. Conversations like this can be tough, but it's really important to try. You have to make sure you don't get too caught up in the weeds, though. Here's Marianne again with some advice for talking with folks who have opposing political beliefs. There are some voters, I mean, there are some voters, unfortunately, in my family that I will never get through this election. They are hell-bent and dug in on supporting a candidate who I feel is unfit. There's absolutely 100%. I can give them all the facts, all the data, everything. It, they're dug in. They're gone. You know, that's, I can't. And you have to know when to cut your losses because you drive yourself crazy, right? There has to be a time when you sit there and say, when you, you can hear it in their voice that no matter what you say, it is not going to change what they do. And then you thank them for their time and move on to the next voter where you might have a better chance of um, impacting their decisions. But then there are people who are very reasonable who, who will say, like I do, tell me more. You know, tell me more about this candidate's plan so I can see whether or not it fits into my values. Marianne says that at the end of the day, one of the best things we can do is try to figure out who we are and what's important to us. Because if we can establish those core values, we will be much more capable of making decisions to support positive change. If I knew then when I was that age, what I knew now, I, you know, I, if, if I could instill all of my life and political experience on every single one of your listeners, I would 100% do anything I could to do that. Um, I, I would encourage them to learn who they are. And here's why. Whenever you're growing up, everybody wants to know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What are your interests in? But very few people ask you, who do you want to be? when you grow up. You know, if you want to be a person of integrity, you can never not act with integrity. If you want to be a kind person, you can never not act with kindness. I think, I think people in that age range need to define who they are and what their values are. That was our show, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and please let us know what you thought. If you learned anything or feel we left anything out, you can reach us on Twitter or Instagram at TheYouthVote1. 
Thank you again to each of our guests. Today, you heard from Marianne Penska, Carly Lehman, and Jelly Duckworth. The Youth Vote is hosted by me, Isaac Mitchell, and produced by Jamie Hobbs. This episode featured original music by Jim Young, some musical transitions from Liam Bradshaw, 